I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is food that interferes with our body's ability to say, I'm full, stop eating. In April this year... Dr. Chris Van Tulliken published a book about something he says is incredibly dangerous. It's the leading cause of early death on planet Earth. He says that ultra-processed foods are causing obesity, disease and changes in our hormones, and yet we can't stop eating them. We've got evidence from brain scanning. We've got evidence from psychiatric studies. The evidence that this food is addictive is very clear. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, why ultra-processed foods have taken over our diets and our brains. I'm Chris Van Tulliken. I'm a doctor, I'm an academic at UCL, and I'm a BBC broadcaster, and I've just written a book called Ultra Processed People. Why do we all eat stuff that isn't food, and why can't we stop? And it certainly got people talking. When did you first become aware of ultra-processed food? I was making a television documentary for the BBC about child obesity, and it was going to be the definitive work on that subject and it was going to draw together all the complexity the psychosocial environmental urban planning genetic wow. behavioral cognitive influences that come to bear on this incredibly intractable problem as we did more research there was a researcher at the bbc called lizzie bolton who handed me these two scientific papers one defining ultra-processed food and one was a simple experiment run by a guy called Kevin Hall at the NIH in the States. And the thesis of these papers was essentially there is only one explanation for the pandemic of childhood obesity and it is industrialized ultra-processed foods. And I think wow. we now have 10 years of really robust data that show that when it comes to the pandemic of childhood obesity, but also adult obesity, there really is only one cause. It isn't to do with the lack of exercise. It isn't to do with the change in human genetics. It's to do with the rise of these industrially produced edible substances that now have this very formal definition, ultra-processed food. In terms of what it's doing to us, 
I mean, I can go through a laundry list of physical effects to the body. In, do you want tell, me to go through well, my laundry list on the body? Yeah, tell us about the body first. I mean, what, what are the effects that we know? I feel what like I have this sort of pressure of speech. Right? I have so much to say about this. Um, we've got really, really good data now. The ultra-processed food, independent of its level of salt, sugar, fiber, and fat, we've got dozens of studies that show that it's strongly associated with weight gain and obesity. Those are the sort of largest number of studies. But it's also strongly linked to anxiety, depression, Metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease like heart attacks and strokes, inflammatory disease like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, and also dementia and early death. It's also linked to all cancers, but specifically certain cancers and death from them, and also early death from all causes. And in 2019, I mean, that's a very bleak list. It's, it's a very long list. And it's not a surprising list. It would be, in a sense, quite odd if it only caused one of those things. It's a bit like cigarettes. Cigarettes also cause almost everything on that list. We are building our bodies from molecules that don't occur in nature, and from foods assembled using processes that drive us to consume them to vast excess. But even if you don't eat them to excess, you are still vulnerable to the effects of all the other harmful effects. So it's perfectly possible to be quite slim, eat a high ultra-processed food diet, and still have a lot of negative health outcomes. Just explain what that diet looks like. I mean, what were you eating? Ultra-processed food is basically anything wrapped in plastic that has an additive that you don't typically find in a domestic kitchen. So it's something with emulsifiers or stabilizers or non-nutritive sweeteners or flavor enhancers, flavoring, coloring, anything like that. But a lot of it is obvious junk. It's your fast food and sweets and crisps and things like this. But quite a lot of it is just our staple food. It's all our breakfast cereal. It's all our flavored yogurts. It's all our supermarket bread. I mean, there are tiny exceptions, but as a statistical truth, it's all of that stuff. And so it's now 60% of what we eat in the UK. You read this paper, you saw what was happening, you saw the disastrous effects of ultra-processed foods, and then instantly decided to consume quite a lot of them. I'm in a research group at UCL, and we wanted to do a, a big study to look at the kind of effects of ultra-processed food out in the real world. So I, I was the first participant, and the plan was simple. I would eat an 80% ultra-processed food diet for one month, and we would measure everything that happened to me and see if anything did happen. So I was typically eating about 20%. When I switched up to 80%, I didn't force feed myself. I can tell you my day, it was just a, a bowl of more or less any breakfast cereal. Sometimes it would be flakes of pressed corn or slices of supermarket bread spread with a, a normal spread. Then lunch would be a sandwich, a pack of crunchy stuff and a fizzy pop. About 1,200 calories of ultra-processed food. It's all ultra-processed. Even if you go to the fancy organic places or you buy it at the sort of slow fast food joints that you might think are a bit more mm. high-end or you go to the fancy supermarkets, it's all ultra-processed. The condiments will be ultra-processed. The meat will be ultra-processed. The bread will be ultra-processed. And so will all the flavorings and the crunchy stuff. And then dinner would just be a ready meal. And I'd have some fruit and veg in there. And, and I'd have snacks throughout the day, some biscuits or, you know, a bit of cake at work. So it was a very, very normal UK diet. It, it didn't say, look I mean, extreme. This, this sounds very standard. Very standard. So my diet, mm. eating 80% of my calories from ultra-processed food, is a completely normal diet for a British teenager or an American teenager, for an Australian 10-year-old. This is what kids very typically eat. It's not quite average, but it's very normal. And we know that one in five people, this is a standard diet. 
And what happened? Three things happened. I gained so much weight in one month that if I'd continued, I would have doubled my body weight in one year. So I gained six kilos. I mean, it was an incredible amount of weight. The second thing was we did a brain scan and we found that the habit forming bits at the back of your brain, the bits that drive your sort of automatic behavior, became much more connected to the ancient addicted reward bits in the middle that drive your sort of appetitive behaviors. And we don't understand the significance of that. I was 42 when I did the experiment. Uh, Those effects lasted for more than 16 weeks. We ended up doing follow-up MRI scans. So the third thing was that I think speaks to kind of the purpose of this food. At the end of the diet, I ate a standardized meal and we measured my hormone response to it. So when you're eating, if you eat real food, you have hunger hormones that signal that you need to go and get food. And then while you're eating, you you have fullness hormones that are released that tell you when to stop eating. At the end Mm. of this standard meal, at the end of my diet, my hunger hormones remain sky high. This is food that interferes with our body's ability to say, I'm full, stop eating. And again, people listening will recognize at the end of that lunch, if that you know, big sandwich and a pack of crunchy stuff and a big soda pop. They've eaten 1,200 calories. All of us lick out the crisp packet. All of us. We (laughs) never leave the last bite of sandwich or a, a few fries in the packet. This is food that's meant to just pass your lips in a millisecond and end up in your stomach. It's not designed for you to try and become a connoisseur. Part of the problem with ultra-processed food is it's incredibly soft. It's been physically, mechanically, thermally processed. So you absorb it very quickly and you eat it very quickly. It's also very energy dense. And so you're consuming calories at a rate that is faster than you've evolved to be able to consume them. And so you never get that hormone signal or rather you've consumed a thousand calories before the hormones get to your brain and say you're done. This is food that you cannot stop eating. And it's not just when you're eating that food. We think it affects your long-term ability to say no to all food. What exactly is the difference between ultra-processed and processed? I mean, what is it okay to buy? So food, there are three types of food. There's whole food, which is like milk, and you can drink milk straight out of a cow. You shouldn't because you'll get brucellosis, but you can. That's a whole food. An oyster, a banana, an apple. These are whole foods. Then there's processed food. And that might be cooking. Cooking is a form of processing. It might be salted, smoked, dried. Mm. Then we have ultra-processed food. And the the line between where processing ends and ultra-processing begins is slightly blurry at the edge, but plastic cheese would be the ultra-processed version of cheese. And that will have some citrates in it and it will, you know, the the cheese strings or those extremely modern synthetic cheeses, they'll have flavorings in them and they'll have a lovely weird texture that's created using a lot of additives. Um, Margarine is ultra-processed butter. It's a synthetic butter made from hydrogenated, interesterified, refined, bleached and deodorized plant oils. And the key bit, in my view, the key bit is that it's food designed for profit. It's extremely profitable. And that doesn't mean there's a sinister conspiracy. It's just that its primary purpose is to develop financialized growth for the owners of the companies that make it. And that's really constrained them and forced them to develop foods that are addictive. We have had in this country, in the States, enough food for many, many decades. And so we have to develop foods that are very, very cheap to make and as addictive as possible. It feels like, you know, they they also fit a need in terms of convenience. You have to have the time to to cook stuff if you're trying to go ultra-processed food-free. And they 
have certainly become so much more popular, you know, just even in my lifetime. The moment they arrived is so important. It was post-World War II. It was the 50s and the 60s. It was the rise of these, um, they were called strato meals. They were sort of, air, it was airline trays. And Americans were getting microwaves and freezers and, and televisions. And yeah. so they, they set up a situation and, and women were entering the workforce in enormous numbers after the war. So initially there was a real benefit. It, it freed up time for family and entertainment and, and they were low cost. I'm very fastidious about my commentary on this because it's very easy to cast a critique of ultra-processed food or, in fact, a critique of the companies that make it as misogynistic because it is primarily women, I think, who will shoulder the burden of preparing food or who might end up shouldering the burden of trying to get ultra-processed food out of the family diet. It's easy to cast it as racist in the sense that it is already disadvantaged communities who are particularly affected and who are particularly forced to eat this food. And that's particularly true in the States. So critique of the food, you have to be incredibly careful not to critique the people who are forced to use it or who are gulled into using it or who are predated upon. Because we live in a sort of food apartheid. People with low incomes, this is the only food they can afford to buy. And it's often the only food that's available to them. I think it's possible to fastidiously critique the companies without critiquing people. But I'm very, very alive to that risk. I think, you know, your book does a really good job of lifting the lid on on that food industry and how it works. You know, you talked a little bit about the finances. Oh, how does the whole thing work? Why, why are UPFs so much more beneficial for them? So the basic mechanism is you grow it's only made of eight things, right? There are four crops that grow into our food, uh, wheat, rice, corn, and soy. And sometimes they're mixed with four different meats, lamb, pork, chicken, and beef. And that's all there is. You then take those ingredients, mainly the wheat, corn, soy, and rice. Those are grown cheaply because they're animal food and they're grown in monocultures in the tropics. So they're very, very cheap crops to grow, but they're not very edible for people. Mm. Um, palm is the other major crop. You know, there's the oil crop, so sunflower and palm and, and mango kernels. In order to make these very cheap crops edible for humans, you take your corn or your soy and you destroy it and you break it down into fat, carbohydrate, and protein. These are dry powders with a nearly infinite shelf life or they're, they're a paste or a liquid with a nearly infinite shelf life. You can then rebuild almost anything you want. You can make a piece of bread or a dinosaur shape or a burger bun or a, or a meat patty or a vegan sausage or pet food or animal food with those basic ingredients. But to make it palatable, you need to flavor it, emulsify it, stabilize it and texturize it and color it. Mm. And so that's the logic is growing commodity crops breaking them down into individual molecules and then reassembling those molecules into more or less anything you want. So there is this illusion of choice. You go to our corner shop and it seems there are thousands of products, you know, and yet when you actually look at the labels, they are all extremely similar. They all start with the same basic ingredients and they might have a bit really? of chocolate in there or they might have a bit of prawn or they might have a bit of something else. But basically everything is made from about four plants, four animals. And actually, that's the kind of industrial farming that's really damaging the environment too. Just tell us a bit about that. We know that ultra-processed food is the leading cause of loss of biodiversity. It is the second leading cause of carbon emissions. It's the leading cause of plastic pollution. It is destroying tropical rainforests at such an enormous rate that the soy plantations that are being grown, for example, south of the Amazon, 
they rely on a river of water that's breathed out by trees. You remember your GCSE geography. Yeah. Waterfalls on trees, trees breathe out and the clouds move inland. They've cut down so many trees that now droughts are affecting the soy plantations that are where the rainforest was. Wow. So the biggest threat to the food security is the food system that is at the moment producing food security. So once we've cut down all the trees, there'll be no rain, there'll be no rivers to divert, there won't be an irrigation and there won't be any more soy. So it's incredible sort of short-termism yeah. because of the pressure to generate quarterly or annual growth for the shareholders. Coming up, how did we become so addicted to these ultra-processed foods? And who's really profiting from this system? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Chris, ultra-processed foods are taking over our diets and... That's partly because they're so cheap, but it's also because they're so addictive. Just talk us through some of the research you did around that. The evidence that this food is addictive is very clear. We've got evidence from brain scanning. We've got evidence from psychiatric studies. And there's a, a very simple definition of an addictive substance, which is that use of the substance continues despite knowledge of harm. And loads of people listening will go, oh, yes, I, I know that the products I'm eating, whether or not you define them as ultra-processed or high-fat salt sugar. There, there are loads of foods we know are harmful, and yet they're very, very hard to stop. 
when we know they're harder than cocaine or cigarettes or heroin or alcohol for people who live with food addiction. They're harder to quit. And we have loads of data on that. Now, the idea of food addiction has been really controversial for a long time because the corollary of saying that food can be addictive is that some people would need to be abstinent from food. And obviously you can't have that. And, and the only food that people binge on, by the way, is almost exclusively ultra-processed food. So people very seldom bake their own chocolate brownies or make their own burgers or make their own biscuits and then binge on them. Part of the binging is to do with the availability and that very particular formulation that the food companies are able to give these products. So these companies are making food that they know is highly addictive and yet they also know is not very good for you. What's their defence? I've done so much media around the book and we've now got this backlash from the food industry and they don't communicate directly. They communicate through institutions like, and I will use this name, the British Nutrition Foundation. Sounds like a very legitimate body. They do advise government. They advise on policy. They release position statements. They work with lots of other charities. They have a very big board of seemingly legitimate scientists. They are funded, um, they're majority funded by every single major food company you can name, by Coca-Cola, Danone, Nestle, Mondelez, all the the Cargill, Tesco, you know, they're funded by all of them. And so they've released a position statement and they take the the same sort of tone as, you know, a number of different articles have appeared saying the same thing, that processing is ancient, processing is fine, we mustn't get hysterical about food processing. And in that sense, they are absolutely right. And they're doing a clever thing. They're conflating processing and ultra-processing. Processed foods have been going for a very long time, as you said. They've been going for thousands of years. Suddenly, looking around now, looking at supermarkets, looking at most people's diets, Ultra-processed foods are everywhere. Is that part of the way the food industry is is modelled at the moment? So we can look at it financially. And when you model the sort of finances of the system, you can't make money from commodity food. The problem with real food is it spoils and you can't have intellectual property. So you can't charge rent on a brand. If you sell beef and I sell beef, you might have grass-fed beef and I might have some particular breed of cow, but more or less beef is beef. And we know that consumers treat commodity real foods, broccoli, beef, milk, cheese, eggs. These things are just all the same. And you can have a markup a bit, but unless you have a brand, you can't really generate a lot of growth. You can't persuade people to buy your thing rather than another thing, Mm. which is why supermarkets don't make a huge amount of money on their fruit and veg and, and real food. There are a number of other problems. It has short shelf life and it's often rather, it's not its not very calorie dense and it's expensive because people need also time to cook it. The utility of the UPF definition is that it is discretionary food. In reality, it's not. It's the only food people can afford. But at least in theory, you don't need to eat it. It isn't real food. So you could just go into a supermarket and buy the vegetables, buy you, the, the right. things. That and, are... and you can't, many, many people live an ultra-processed food-free life. My mother doesn't eat any of it. I now don't eat any of it. It costs me a lot more time and money and it's inconvenient, Mm. but it's an easy thing to do. If you have time and money, for some people it's impossible. Um, Why do you think people haven't been talking about ultra-processed foods so much until now? How has the food industry got away with it for so long? Well, the food industry is just a very normal industry. They're just trying to do what all PLCs do, which is pay money to their owners. That's that's why they exist. And so now a lot of my research is economic research. So I'm doing work to show that 
the food system is increasingly financialized. And we know that our food is made by quite a small number of companies, by some measurements, four, by some measurements, more than about 20. Mm. And they're largely owned by a handful, five to 10 uh, very large institutional investors, the, the pension funds. And so these companies have a very clear obligation to generate profit and growth and dividends for these owners. And one of the things that major food companies claim is that they are interested not just in their shareholders, not just in their owners, but in a wide range of stakeholders. They're interested in consumer health, in public health, in the environment, in reducing plastic pollution, in reducing carbon emissions, in creating biodiversity and not deforesting peat bogs in Borneo. What we can show using fairly straightforward economic measurements is that their primary focus, indeed their sole focus, is delivering growth to shareholders. And so they do things like quarterly share buybacks where they use money instead of investing it in cleaning up public health problems or environmental problems, they simply buy back shares. And that's one of the ways they generate value for owners. And this is happening across lots of sectors, but it's particularly worrying when the purpose of the system that we think exists to supply food to us, when their primary purpose is really to generate growth for pension funds. So how have they got away with it? Um, partly because there's no regulation. And I think mainly because there's a very, very normal culture of financial relationships between scientists, media doctors, and the food industry. And Chris, in this country, it's been a problem for a while, but particularly since COVID, both the NHS and the government have been pushing an obesity strategy or an anti-obesity strategy. They've been trying to raise awareness around the subject, trying to make people exercise more and eat healthier. Should they really, from what you've been saying, be talking much more about ultra-processed foods? Is that what we should be much more aware of? When you talk about an obesity strategy, um, I'm not going to press you on this, but if I were to say to you, tell me about this obesity strategy, what's in it? Could oh. you tell me? Well, I, I think it's about park runs. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what does it look like? Yeah. I'm not sure there is a meaningful obesity strategy. Um, there is, I would suggest, almost nothing being done to tackle this. And to deal with exercise, exercise and obesity have nothing to do with each other. Yeah. We've known this since the 1990s. And I the think food, that still comes as a shock to most the, people. The, this is going to sound like a... a a conspiracy. It, well, it was a conspiracy is the point, but this is incredibly robustly shown that we showed in the 1990s and up to 2010 very clearly that if you do more exercise, you don't burn more calories. The, the physiology of it is a bit complicated, but essentially the reason exercise is good for you is because if you go for a run, you take energy away from your inflammation and your anxiety and your reproductive hormones. So Going for a run steals energy from other budgets, but it doesn't change your total energy consumption for the day. I want to say this is consensus in the field. There is no argument about this. There are no legitimate metabolic scientists who will disagree wow. with me. Coca-Cola funded a network of influence that promoted the idea that if you went for a run, you would burn more energy. They funded huge numbers of scientific studies. They funded a global energy balance network. And they created an understanding of the human body where if you do exercise, you burn more calories. And it simply isn't true. This was my understanding before I wrote this book. Yeah. And I have a PhD in molecular biology and a medical degree. I'm somewhat educated. A lot of my understanding of human metabolism had ultimately come from the Coca-Cola Corporation. <laughs> this is very widely reported. A huge investigation, New York Times, Guardian. This Why? Is, this is Why reported. were they pushing that agenda? Because if, if you can say that by going for a run, 
uh, you burn more calories, then Coca-Cola or any other soft drink becomes an energy drink. And that's why we see sponsorship of sporting events by the soft drinks industry. So it's fascinating. We are certain that activity and energy is not is very healthy for you. It's really good for you. Everyone should do exercise, strength work, 10,000 steps a day, or even more if you can do it. It will not help you lose weight. We think that in order to lose weight, that probably the most important thing to do is to reduce your intake of these ultra-processed, high-fat, salt-sugar foods, of, of the industrial foods. Given all of that, what do you think government should do? What should policy be trying to do to stop the problem? The first thing is to change the culture. So we need to treat the food industry like the tobacco industry. If, if you read a study about asthma or lung cancer, and it was funded by Philip Morris you would think that was completely absurd, wouldn't you? We yeah. all would. The food industry's money needs to become dirty when it comes to health. They can do research on food, but when it comes to health, they, they can't study it or they shouldn't. So it's changing that culture where the charities start to understand that they can't take money from the food industry. That's number one. Number two is we need really strict marketing regulations. So I don't want to tax this food, or at least not initially. That would be very regressive. We need to get the cartoon characters off the pack. Yeah. There, are, there are political difficulties because, of course, the advertising industry has a huge amount of power. But in Central America, so in Chile, Colombia, Mexico, currently if you, if you get a packet of food and you try and go, is this healthy food? There's mm. this optional system of traffic lights. Cereals might have two greens and two oranges. Well, what, what do you do with it? Is that a healthy food or an unhealthy food? Who knows? Yeah. In Mexico, that food doesn't have a cartoon character on it and it has a big black hexagon. When you put big black hexagons on unhealthy food, children ask their parents to stop eating it. So it's like our generation, I can remember telling my dad to stop smoking. And kids care about their own health. They care about their parents' health a lot. And so if you appropriately label things, all kinds of changes happen. We need to put about ultra-processing in our national nutrition guidance. We can put in something quite soft and say, you know, there's a growing amount of evidence that associates ultra-processed food with a lot of negative health outcomes. Mm. And we would recommend that reducing this in your diet would be really sensible. You could put that line in the national nutrition guidance. And then we need to change institutional food, prisons, hospitals, schools, mm. make it real food. So that's what government policy should be doing. What about all of us? You know, having, having, having read the book, it's clearly not possible in the world that we live in right now for most people to cut out ultra-processed foods entirely, you know, particularly... It's probably if, possible for most people, mm. but it will be hard. But it might just be, it might be like 51%. So some people can be abstinent. Other people need to treat it like booze in the sense that there are lots of people who can't ever enjoy an alcoholic drink. But lots of us can enjoy a glass of wine or two on a Friday night. When you start having that glass of wine on a Monday morning, mm. it's a real problem. So the, the book doesn't, I hope it's a book without stigma, without judgment, and it's a book that, that uses the Alan Carr method to quit smoking. Keep eating while you read, and by the end, most people that have got in touch with me and most of my friends and family find they can't eat the food anymore. That's so, so interesting. We know that addiction and disgust are located quite close to each other in the brain. They're mediated through very similar brain structures using similar neurotransmitters, using the same neurotransmitter. And lots of us will recognize, like in our personal lives, if you ever had the, well, I won't ask you this personally, but <laughs> often the people that you have an addicted relationship with a person, they can quite 
quickly become someone that you actually really don't want to see and they're a bit yucky. <laughs> and the same thing can happen. People describe it with cigarettes. They describe it with drugs of abuse. And the, this happened to me with the food. And so at the core <sighs> of the book is the proposal that's it's a very well-evidenced psychological technique. Keep eating the food while you read the book. And you say you don't really want to give people advice or tell them how to live their lives. But you've done it. Um, what, are your, what are your top tips? The reason I don't give advice is partly because I have no idea about you or your family or your budget, or what you like to eat or what your kids tolerate. But it's also because then it becomes my problem. <laughs> so if I start giving you advice, whatever it is, and we, we've got loads of studies on this, then, and I find this as a doctor, you know, doctors are great at giving advice out of context and patients never follow it. I, what I like is to give people information and then it's up to you. Then you're empowered and you can do what you want. What I have found, so this isn't advice, but what I have found is that breakfast is a great meal to get a hold of. So I have porridge for breakfast and a banana. I eat the same thing for breakfast almost every day. And I try and make that for my kids. I have a stovetop cooker. It costs a bit of gas. It's more expensive than if I just poured out a bowl of cereal. Mm. But it is affordable for most people. So get control of breakfast. But mainly, like, don't give yourself a hard time. This is like trying to quit cigarettes in the 1960s. And if you and I were doing this podcast in the 1960s, we would both be sitting here. <laughs> smoking. Smoking away. Yeah. We might have a beer, you know. <laughs> so I'd, I don't think, um, don't beat yourself up. What I care about as an academic, as a public health doctor, is that you have the free, true freedom of choice to eat what you want. And what we know actually is true is when people can choose what they want to eat, uh, they eat healthy food. That's what most people want to eat. So you need accurate information. You need to be free of inappropriate marketing and you need to not be saturated in this food. And we need real food to be mm. affordable. And how much are ultra processed foods still a part of your diet and for your family too? I mean, this can't be easy. So my kids, I, I want to be full disclosure, my kids eat quite a lot of this. So last weekend we had two parties. It was, it was because everyone knows I'm going to be at the party. Everyone, all my friends think that I judge them. So there was um, quite a lot of sort of carrots, but there's also cake and pizza and crisps and things. So I don't restrict my kids from eating that because part of having kids is being normal. I don't want to give everyone a neurosis and panic everyone, but we should all feel enraged that it is so expensive to eat real food and it is so unavailable and this food is forced on us the whole time. So my kids eat it constantly at school, obviously. I eat almost none of it except um, to be polite. And I can sound really <laughs> pompous here. I just don't want it. I sincerely don't want it. But I'm sometimes at someone, I was at this party and someone just handed me a piece of birthday cake and I just thought, I've, I just don't want to be a weirdo here. And I ate a whole <laughs> slice of cake and it was fine. You know, I enjoyed the cake. It was okay. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Dr. Chris Van Tulliken, the author of Ultra Processed People, Why Do We All Eat Stuff That Isn't Food and Why Can't We Stop? If you want to pick up a copy, we've put a link to The Times Bookshop in the description of this podcast. The producers today were Hannah Varrell and Sam Chantarasak, the executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. <laughs>